All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to the GT Power Hour. Welcome back, everybody. It is early September, just after Labor Day. We all had a nice holiday. The pseudo-distancing procedures drag on, and we still don't have any indication when the next BRA will occur. Glenn, I thought Groundhog Day was in February. What's going on here? Yeah, we're doing Groundhog Day every month now, isn't it? But at least we have uh, the NFL to look forward to. We got NHL playoffs. We got NBA playoffs. The Phillies are actually doing okay, so... Uh, hopefully by the time folks listen to this, they're in first place. And let's at least enjoy those good feelings that are being created by being able to enjoy those outlets. Absolutely. Well, welcome again. As always, uh, I am your host, Rory Sweeney, and with me is Glenn Thomas. Today, we have a very packed agenda. We have a great guest that I will let Glenn introduce in a second, but we got a lot to talk about. We're going to talk about what's going on in California right now. We're going to talk about carbon pricing. We plan on getting into PJM's markets, and if you're paying attention to all of that, you might actually be able to guess who our guest is, but Glenn, I will let you take it. Yeah, thanks, Rory, and we got a terrific guest as, as always here, but we're, we're pleased to be joined by Thad Hill today, who's president and CEO of Calpine. Calpine is one of the largest generators in the country. He became CEO of that organization in 2014. Prior to that, he spent some time at NRG, and before that, it looks like he was a consultant, so there's hope for all of us in the world that consultants can grow up and have real jobs one day because he's certainly doing that. He's a graduate of both Vanderbilt and Dartmouth, uh, and he's a rabid Astro fan. So welcome, Thad. Glad you could join us today. Thanks, Quinn. I'm super happy to be here. Great. Why don't you give our listeners a little bit of an introduction and background on the company? Sure. Uh, We think of ourselves as an integrated competitive power company. Uh, and they're really, you know, multiple parts for our business, but, but I kind of think about it in, in four key parts. Uh, we have a natural gas fleet, so it's power generation, almost 26,000 megawatts. The majority of that being combined cycle plants, pretty late model, efficient, and modern uh, fleet. And that's really the history of Calpine. I would say that we take a lot of pride in how we operate our plant safely and efficiently and with our availability. So, you know, that's really a big part of our legacy. The second part of our business is we have, and and it's a plant, but it really is a big part of our business, um, is we operate the world's largest geothermal uh, generating facility out in Northern California, Sonoma and Lake Counties, and produces 6 million megawatt hours a year, and it's the largest single renewable asset in the state of California. Thirdly, our commercial and trading operations, uh, it takes a lot of effort to supply all those gas plants with fuel and to manage the transportation and procurement, as well as, as the, uh, you know, the sales and, and the management of our trading and power of our power risk. And we also hopefully can find a way to make a little money around the edges, given the information that we have uh, in the market. And lastly, is in the retail business. We have a national, both direct and indirect uh, commercial and industrial business. We also have residential businesses um, in the Mid-Atlantic and Northeast, but most notably in Texas under our champion brand. And, you know, all four of these parts of our business really work together. The whole is definitely great than the 
the sum of the individual parts. And we spent a lot of time figuring out how to work kind of cross-organizational, cross-functional, and get the most out of it. Strategically, I just make two simple points. As far as our asset ownership in each of our key regions, which I would characterize as New England, uh, kind of PJM, so you know the Midwest through the Mid-Atlantic, Texas and the West Coast, we really try and be either the first, second, or maybe the third largest owner of gas assets in each of the markets. We found that this regional scale matters a lot. We get to share talent. It helps commercially when you hedge. You've got more backup generation. And most importantly, it really helps with our regulatory voice. And I do think increasingly in our business, advocacy and regulatory advocacy really matters. And for us, the two things that matter the most are, you know, markets, work, and environmental responsibility. And finally, just to give you a, a you know, kind of a rough indication of our size, our EBITDA in 2019 uh, is somewhere in the middle of our two public peers, NRG and Vistra to kind of give you a rough scale of the business. As Glenn alluded to earlier, you're based in Houston uh, and have a lot of operations in the Gulf region. Hurricane Laura just rolled through that area. I was living in Houston during the Memorial Day flood in 2015 and remember how much havoc that caused. Our thoughts obviously go out to anyone who was impacted by that. Were any of Calpine's operations or its employees affected by what happened? Thank you so much for asking. Uh, we're generally doing okay, but I actually want to put this in perspective, given kind of the kind of year 2020 has been. In my staff meeting, my direct report meeting, uh, almost three weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago now, the agenda in that meeting actually started with the wildfires in California. We've got a lot of employees that are evacuated for those. Secondly, item on the agenda were the blackouts in California. The third item were, in fact, the hurricanes at the time, Marco and Laura, that were bearing down on the Gulf Coast. And fourth was the pandemic. And I would definitely say that to have a meeting where the pandemic has been moved down to number four on the agenda kind of kind of year we're having. (laughs) But but the good news is there was no damage for us. Uh, Obviously, people were very tragically impacted, but no impact to um, Laura. Uh, We have a full business continuity plan, backup teams that we moved to Austin so we can continue our business. That all worked great. And the wildfires in the West, as I mentioned, there's been no impact to our business. Our facilities are not at risk. We have several dozen employees evacuated, so I certainly want to mention them. Um, So far, no real employee losses, but our thoughts and prayers continue to be with those employees. And then, of course, like all our peers and everybody, we're figuring out this pandemic thing. But it's been just quite the year. I couldn't imagine a a meeting where that was the agenda, like just one mess after another. Yeah, much less normal business, right? (laughs) Sure, sure, sure. Let's move into some history. In early 2018, Calpine made the somewhat unusual move from a public company back to a private company. And you've said it's because the markets and analysts in particular weren't evaluating the company fairly. What were they missing? And how frustrating was it to see them continue to not get it? Do you think it was at all intentional? No, I don't think anything was intentional. And I'm actually going to come back to the fair comment because I don't recall saying that. Um, I probably felt that. But I, I actually uh, have a slightly different point of view on that now. So uh, if you'll just bear with me, maybe just a little bit rewinding the clock. For you know half a dozen years or so, from the late aughts through about 2015, our value as a company was more or less, our equity value, more or less 10 times free cash flow. If we were producing a dollar a share of free cash, this is to equity, you know, we were a $10 stock. At $2 per share of free cash, we were a $20 stock. 
And to us, that seemed like a reasonable cost of equity for the business. In the spring of 2015, there was a global commodity meltdown. I don't know if you guys remember it, but everything, I mean, you can think steel and copper, uh, you know, oil, any global commodity really cratered. By the beginning of 2016, most of the global commodities had begun to recover, but our sector hadn't. You know, as we worked our way through and we tried, obviously, communicating with analysts and understanding what was going on, we spent a lot of time really thinking about what was driving this. And ultimately, I got to the point where I thought there was a structural issue with how we were being valued or or why we were being valued at that level, uh, which really led to us going to the board. And and I recommended that we actually consider the sale option to a private option. And really what it came down to, in, in my view, is that, you know, 10 years before this, almost many utilities, I would say, actually had unregulated subsidiaries. And you can think about them that no longer have those. Edison, Sempra in the power sector, they still do an LNG. Pepco, PPL, Southern, Excel, the list goes on. And over this time frame, they had been largely divested by the regulated holders. And we're down to a couple left, uh, going to one, probably. And, and that's it. And so for a long time, the buy side community that held utilities, you know, had to spend a lot of time understanding the merchant space in order to own those utilities. As that diminished, the need for the buy side community to really invest the time really dropped. I mean, if you want to think about it, the amount of work, and it's a very complicated space to understand, and and the amount of work that had to get done per dollar of investable market cap, just, you know, that that ratio got got out of control and the long-only holders backed out of the stocks. And as that happened, the marginal investor became deep value. And ultimately, you know, our, as I mentioned, we used to trade it 10 times. We were trading it five times, you know, more or less by the spring of 2017 when we really got this transaction underway. As far as FAIR goes, I really think we have to think about FAIR. And like I said, I'm sure I thought it at the time. But there are things that management teams know that the market may not. We may have a better view on kind of how the markets revolve or what our future earnings are going to be. But one thing that a management team or a company doesn't get to pick is their cost of capital. The market gets to pick that. So I don't know whether fares are right or not. The market chose that cost of capital for us. And we found somebody who had a different view of cost of capital. So for us, we got a 50% premium for our shareholders. They were very happy. The new shareholders are happy. We're returning money and we're on plan. And, you know, I think we've, you know, found a better home. Incidentally, since this time, our public peers are still being valued at six to seven times EBITDA and with levered free cash flow yields in the high teams. And these are companies that are my competitors that are very well run. I think a lot of the management teams, they have low leverage. They've had steady and good results. Um, and that's just kind of where it is. So I'm certainly happy with where we are. And for whatever it's worth, you know, life's a lot easier too. You've also talked about the strategic flexibility and time savings that the move provided. Did that present any unexpected challenges? I mean, obviously, it's, it sounds like you believe that you made the right choice here. I, we did. I, I haven't really experienced any strategic difficulties. I actually think it's, it enables us to have, in a lot of ways, more frank conversations about regulatory issues. We have more strategic flexibility in a lot of ways because we can look at things and not have to worry about how investors are going to view them as long as we have our owners and our board behind us. Uh, you don't have to worry so much about the external point of view. So I would say all in all, uh, you know, I don't miss much or I don't think we're really constrained relative to where we were before. And I think we've got a very, still have a very competitive cost of capital compared to our public peers. Calpine invests at-risk capital in the market. 
Um, you, you don't have a rate base, but your investors have expectations, obviously, 17 billion of them, according to the generally accepted valuation of the company. You're investing billions in the market in which you have no guaranteed revenue stream or rate of return. But what really keeps you up at night? And, and the converse of that, what eventually gets you to sleep? Yeah, that is certainly an essay question. So let me try and maybe kind of break it down. Uh, you know, first, kind of what keeps me up at night or, or concerns me? the whole country and wholesale power markets have really moved away from a philosophy of setting clear rules and letting competition play out. There's been 20 years of real success. We've had lots of investment, low prices, which have resulted because of the investment. Pollution is down and all of that is really good things. However, you know, we've got this sense of, and I'll call it populism from both the left and the right to be non-political that's kind of emerged. And, you know, the belief that government does a better job of deploying capital in the markets. And that is something you know, obviously that I completely reject the premise of, but, but that is definitely an overlay. Kind of as a second big category, maybe, uh, and I'll try and keep it to three, is that certain utility companies that are out there, you know, are really trying or really have succeeded in a lot of ways, uh, taking advantage of this lower confidence in markets to really find a way to build their rate base, build their earnings, and in many cases to do that at ratepayer expense. Uh, utilities have to maintain their valuations, have earnings growth targets, you know, call it five to seven percent in a lot of cases. And in a world in which electric uh, demand is flat or even modestly shrinking. Uh, and so, you know, you got to work pretty hard to grow earnings five to seven percent if your underlying consumption of your product isn't increasing. And they've been working hard to do that. Allegedly, in Ohio and in, certainly in Illinois, you know, even resorting to illegal activity to get it done. Just to give a couple of examples of this, uh, in, uh, if you take Pennsylvania, and I'll mention that because I know it's Glenn's home state, in 2012, the regulated portion of the electric bill was just 35%. In 2017, the regulated portion of the electric bill is now 60%, and I bet it's even higher today. So competition has really driven down wholesale prices, and meanwhile, rate base as and non-bypassable charges, which are also rate-based like charges, have continued to grow. The nuclear bailouts, which have occurred uh, in many states, are very similar to this. Uh, in some cases, they've been in New Jersey. Uh, and for example, in New Jersey, you know, these plants are indisputably cash flow positive, and they're still receiving $300 million a year. Uh, and you know, to rewind the clock on these, these plants were fully paid for in restructuring. When gas prices were in double digits in the late aughts, they got paid a ton of money again. And now there's a third runaround that's occurring in, in several of these states. And so, you know, while there's hope in Ohio, maybe that we can get rolled back, you know, that's another example of kind of companies waiting in and taking advantage of the populism I mentioned before. And finally, this is not just in some of these competitive states, but, and, and this is kind of a, a tagline maybe, but uh, if, if you arguing for deregulation or competition over full regulation, you know, the three words I would mention would be, Kemper, Sumner, and Vogel, um, and that's a little bit of a joke, uh, but those are the, uh, you know, three huge projects which were, you know, providing a lot of rate base in the southeast, and none of them have gone very well. Finally, we can come back, and this is kind of my third concern, if you want to call it that, and we can come back to this in a minute, but as the world decarbonizes, renewables are going to continue to grow, and plants like ours are absolutely required for liability. And over time, and we're, we're a few years away from that happening in most markets, but our assets will run less and less. And so we've got to think about how we'll be compensated over the long run. So does that make sense? Before maybe I, I move on to, you know, some, some very positive 
items, I actually think, you know, those were kind of the general trends that are troubling. Governor Sumner and Vogel sounds like a law firm you should stay away from. <laughs> that sounds like to me. Very high hourly rates. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no. Sumner, Vogel, and Kemper. It does sound like that, doesn't it? So, you know, look, but, but there's, there's some good things going on there, too, which, which I think are very important to point out. And these are macro issues, right? There's a lot of detail one-offs in, in any of the different, you know, one-off battles. But, you know, I do think that, you know, while it's true that sometimes, you know, governments uh, or policymakers can suspend the law of economics. In other words, you can allocate money by fiat to the wrong or unnecessary place. They cannot suspend the law of physics. And our plants are absolutely required to support reliability. Um, and our plants, or plants like them, are going to be required for decades, uh, certainly in a decarbonizing world, which requires electrifying a lot of things, which requires load growth. Uh, and that's a larger topic. But I do think these physics are becoming better understood, and I think that's very helpful. Uh, and secondly, I also think that eventually consumers and industrial customers are going to have their say. A response to corruption like in Illinois and Ohio is one example. Another is just an increase to ever-increasing rates. Large industrial and commercial user groups like Elcon are watching this very carefully. We have a lot of industrial and uh, commercial very large customers, and they certainly are paying attention um, and making sure, you know, certainly leaning against a bunch of non-bypassable charges to support out-of-market items. And I think over time, this will be uh, really helpful. And, and you know, finally, there's, there's this feedback loop. I mean, New Jersey is charging its citizens $300 million a year um, in order to bail out these nuclear plants. Certainly, Pennsylvania made a very different choice, which I think will be good for Pennsylvania business. And I'm sure there are other states that aren't doing this that are going to be looking at the economic development opportunities to work companies away from states that are making these very expensive decisions. So ultimately, I think that feedback loop is beginning to work as well. I want to take a brief tangent, hopefully, but it's something that I, I like to talk about a lot on this podcast and just in general. I think you make a lot of really great points, and they all culminate into the argument that you're making here. How do you translate that into language that is appreciated and understandable by people in the community who are not in this industry, who are not heavily involved or steeped in the history of uh, electricity rate making, other than just sort of the big headlines of scandal and high prices uh, on your, your monthly bills? How do you communicate some of these more detailed uh, realities? Well, for us, uh, you know, I don't believe that wholesale power generators are necessarily the most effective carriers of the messages. Uh, we certainly have a lot of the facts, but the impact of very high bills and people's regulators or legislators making decisions to cost them a lot more money with maybe not a lot of benefit, once these groups understand it, they become really energized. And we've seen that happen. Um, in some of these uh, state, and Glenn is far more uh, in a far better place to talk about some of the state activities than I am, but we've seen groups like the, the, the state industrial uh, lobbying groups get involved against some of these auto market actions. We've seen the AARP get involved, people on fixed income, because they have, they have impact on their bills. And, you know, we, we've seen a lot of polling data and from a couple different sources. And generally, if you ask somebody if, if they want a winter future or jobs are always going to say yes. When you actually start talking about the price tag some of these things um, require, then the polling data and, and the people start to feel a lot differently. So I would say right. 
you know, I think the best we can do is inform people. And I actually think consumers and industrials are going to respond on their own. But Glenn, you may have a point of view on that too. Yeah, I mean, clearly the consumers are starting to realize the problems associated with all these out-of-market actions. And I mean, there's a reason they understand it, and that's because there's a long history of it. I mean, every time states try to go around the market or try to outfox or outsmart the market, they, they tend to end up on the losing it uh, from a price perspective. And, you know, I can point to dozens and dozens of examples of that over the years. And, you know, yeah, I think when consumers start to look at some of the places where their dollars are going right now. I mean, Thad mentioned $300 million going to profitable nuclear plants in New Jersey. There's a debate in Ohio, you know, about $150 million going to a company that just you know, did an $800 million stock buyback. You know, there's a lot of questions in Illinois, certainly the governor of Illinois is pushing back on some of the threats uh, that Exxon is making in regards to their plants. So yeah, I mean, the pushback is happening. And you know, a big reason it's happening is because, you know, a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of snake oil being sailed over the last couple of years. That mentioned Pennsylvania. Fortunately, Pennsylvania was wise enough to stand up and say, not in our state. But yeah, I mean, eventually consumers have a say and conventionally consumers have a voice. And I think, you know, the pendulum's starting to swing a little bit. But, you know, it, it requires vigilance because, I mean, one of the things that you face from time to time at these state level debates is, a cost-benefit analysis that says, "Hey, your bill's only going to go up a dollar fifty a month. That's enough to, you know, support this awesome new plan or keep this plant that's been around for fifty years running." But what folks don't realize is, you know, even though it is only a dollar fifty a month, for what you're getting for that dollar fifty a month, it's it's not worth it. So, uh, especially when there's other options available for about fifty cents. So, uh, yeah, the debates will go on, but I think it's interesting. And I actually do think that our sector and this for the competitive generators and retailers have really over the last couple of years gotten much more active um, in the individual states. We used to be able to just go down to PJM and, you know, work the stakeholder process, PJM, for example. Now we need to be in the states and we're going to be more successful in the states when we work with people in the states that are ratepayers, both industrials and consumers that care about their electric bills. So to your answer to your question, Rory, I think you know, the messages are, you know, we can be provider of facts and let the groups that are paying the price make their voice heard. And on that note, Pat, I mean, companies like Calpine are going to be the ones that are building this clean energy future. And you've already mentioned a couple projects you're involved with, but, you know, increasing some, a lot of those state conversations are headed towards, hey, we want a cleaner and greener future. Can you just spend a minute about how your vision for Calpine being part of that cleaner, greener future? Sure. And, and this does get into carbon pricing in in a real way. We obviously operate what I would say late model gas plants across the country. We have our first storage uh, project that's under construction in Southern California, and there's more to come on that. In places like solar and wind, we have found that it's actually better for us to go out and contract for solar and wind and then break bulk and then pass that along to our customers that are demanding it because the cost of capital with some of those owners of those assets are so low. Can you explain break bulk? That might be a term that's new to folks. Break bulk is where we contract for a larger quantity of, for an example, solar power. And then we actually take that larger quantity and we break it into parts. And then we sell those parts along to our customers, none of which are large enough to actually buy the big package that we bought. So I would say that we become more of a merchant there, Glenn, 
where we may not own the solar farm, but we contract it and then we break bulk and pass it along to our customers so that they can get what they need. We're far better off, you know, doing that deal than some of our customers are. And so in many ways, I mentioned earlier, we're an integrated competitive power company. Sometimes we own the assets. And in the case of some of these renewables, we may or may not own the asset, but we may rent them if you want to think about it or do a contract and then take the capacity that we buy, break it into smaller parcels and then sell it through to our end use customers. And, you know, that's a, you know, a very real part of our business now is both our wholesale customers and our retail customers, particularly our larger retail customers, is helping provide them with the resources that are clean that they want. So sometimes we own the assets directly. Other times we will uh, work with our customers to procure for them the asset that they're wanting, which may or may not make sense for us to own. On that topic, FERC is actually having a technical conference on carbon pricing in, in a couple of weeks. You're a strong advocate for carbon pricing, obviously you've mentioned it, but what do you realistically expect to come out of that technical conference? So first, Rory, we're certainly thankful to Chairman Chatterjee and the FERC staff for beginning this conversation. We think it's absolutely the right thing to do. Broadly exploring the price of CO2 on the energy market is certainly the right next step. Uh, we, you know, we're not certain that there's an imminent carbon pricing decision that's coming out of FERC, but you got to begin the conversation somewhere. And so we're absolutely there. I would say kind of coming out slightly larger, thinking about carbon pricing, I think people sometimes, when they talk about carbon pricing in the electric sector, lose the bigger picture. I think the bigger picture, the objective function, is not solely to decarbonize the electric grid, but rather to decarbonize the economy. And that's really where we need to go. To decarbonize the overall economy generally is going to require sweeping electrification of transportation, industrial processes, home heating, et cetera. So in order to decarbonize the economy, and I'll give you some stats in a minute, you got to electrify, and this will drive overall electric load growth. So just examples of what I think is a very important point in California, which is uh, the most advanced decarbonized economy in the country right now, only about 10% of the greenhouse gases emitted in California come from in-state power generation. Only 10%, 40% come from transportation and a lot from agriculture as well as the other uses. Um, in New England, again, it's over 40% comes from transportation and power generation is just under 20%. So when you've got goals of 40% reduction by 2030 or 80% or carbon net neutrality by the middle of the century, it can't get there when power generation is only 10%. You got to focus economy wide. And so we would certainly, you know, in any of our advocacy here, it's let's focus economy wide and then we can get there. I would argue further that in a lot of the jurisdictions where there have been laws passed or regulation implemented, you know, whether some version of the Green New Deal or net carbon neutrality or 100% renewables by some date, I would say generally most of the policy has gotten pretty far ahead of the actual physics and the economics. Thankfully, just in the last year, in fact, has the academic work really begun to catch up, which I think is a key point. There's an excellent study done by Secretary Muniz, uh, President Obama's energy secretary, who's a think tank now called EFI. They did some work on um, decarbonizing uh, California. Uh, there's a group called E3, again, out of the West Coast. that's done some work both in the West Coast as well as other parts of the country. And generally, you know, what these groups are saying is that you have to have a healthy electric grid in order to decarbonize the economy. Now, over time, you also decarbonize the electric grid, and you actually you know, will need a, a price from carbon that applies there as well. So look, all of that is true, and, and I think you know, we have to keep the big picture right. It is true 
that if we are, FERC, you know, doesn't have purview, obviously, in the entire economy. And we'll be focused more on electric-only uh, cost of carbon. I do think there are a couple of things that we need to keep in mind there to avoid distortions. Uh, and I can go more into that if you'd like. But I also think, you know, even as we talk about electric sector pricing carbon, if we're going to achieve the goals that many people think we need to achieve, we got to go economy-wide. Well, I certainly would be interested in knowing what you meant by the market distortions. So let me give you uh, a couple of examples. There are two carbon markets in the U.S. right now. One, which is economy-wide in California, to their credit, it is economy-wide, and it's called AB32. It stands for Assembly Bill 32, but it's what everybody calls the carbon market in the West. And then one in the East, which uh, is the regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, or REGI, as everybody covers it. The two flaws to really talk about are what happens with carbon at the border, what they call border adjustments. We'll give an example of that in a minute. And the other would be resource shuffling. So let me give you an example of both of these. Today in Reggie, you know, you've got states across the river from each other. To use an example of Pennsylvania or Delaware, and there's no cost of carbon in Pennsylvania, and there's a cost of carbon in Delaware. So you're going to end up with perhaps less efficient units operating where there is no carbon cost and where there's no carbon price and where there is. So as we start talking about all PJM, there needs to be a border adjustment. Otherwise, you get more carbon over time. So that's kind of one issue to be worked through. The other is resource shuffling. And let me give you an example from New England. Right now, Hydro-Quebec is planning to import through Maine into Massachusetts a whole bunch of hydro. They're not building any new hydro in Quebec. So New England is importing hydro. They feel better about decarbonizing New England. Meanwhile, incremental fossil units are going to end up running up in Quebec. And, you know, CO2 is a global issue, not a local issue. So again, there's no real benefit. You know, I would say Reggie, as it's constructed today, has issues with both border adjustments as well as resource shuffling. In California, they've actually put in place AB32. They've addressed the border adjustments, but they actually still have the ability for resource um, shuffling to occur, particularly in the Pacific Northwest. So, you know, if we're going to put in place uh, electric-only carbon pricing in some of these regional markets, we've got to address both of these. And there's solutions. Um, they just have to get worked out. And for any of our PJM watchers in the audience, as you know, this is the basis of the carbon pricing senior task force that's going on right now. And, and border adjustments is one of the major sticking points that is being discussed right now. Right. But remember, Rory, it can't just be border adjustments. You also have to prevent resource shuffling on the other side. Right. Just taking an asset uh, that's existing and just moving the megawatt hours to where there's a carbon price and, and burning more fuels back at home doesn't, doesn't you know, do anything for the environment. You know, one of the intriguing things on that that has been an impediment with PJM is, is they've consistently had to say, well, we can model what happens in PJM and how all of that is adjusted, but we really can't talk about what happens beyond our footprint and beyond our borders. And that's really where this comes into play, correct? I mean, without having a universal RTO, how do you adjust for those issues? Well, I would just charge any any important resource the average carbon intensity of from where it came. Rather than resource specific, you just charge it the average carbon intensity and that prevents any gaming on the other side. Is that how they do it in California? Yeah, Glenn, they do it unless you name a specific resource. And that's the flaw in my view is that if you can point to a hydro unit in the Pacific Northwest and bring it in, which of course you do, then you don't have to do that. If you don't name the unit, then you get the average. The problem is, of course, everybody fills up the import lines with named hydro units so they don't pay carbon, and then all the fossil units are 
left behind Pacific Northwest and it doesn't really do anything. They've moved further down the path of evolution than Reggie has, mm -hmm. but you know, there's still tweaks that need to be made to get this right. You know, one of the things that we know from prior podcasts is that Chairman Chatterjee likes to listen to this while he's working out. <laughs> um, is there any question you hope to get at the carbon pricing techno conference or any, any words of wisdom you can offer the chairman going into it? You know, I don't know where, how things are going to evolve over time. But we believe that a price on carbon, and it could be some type of CES you know, that looks like a price of carbon, uh, is a much better path than having a whole bunch of state command and control targeted resource allocation decisions. So, you know, it's clear we're going to decarbonize as an economy. Making it market-based is by far the best way. And so I, I certainly think that beginning this conversation is absolutely the right thing. Well, Thad, you mentioned California there, and it's a very timely topic. And we talked about the wildfires earlier as well. So let's talk about California. Temperatures got hot. They continued to be hot. And the lights went out because they ran out of power. What is your take on what happened in California? How likely is it to happen again? And also, what should other states and or regions learn from the California summer of 2020? Uh, thanks, Roy. Let me, let me start. I, I just want to thank our Calpine power operations team um, in the West, in California, as well as we have plants in Oregon and in Arizona. And during the over this course of this weekend, as well as, you know, two weeks ago when we had the event, our fleet performed extremely well. Uh, and we were really there uh, and helping protect reliability. So I'm, I'm very certainly proud um, of them and appreciate. I know they, a lot of them worked hard and very hard um, over some, some very hot conditions. And I'm just really thankful. And, and, we, and we did great. And, and I think we did our part. Uh, you know, as a footnote, as we're going to talk about California, I did just kind of, you know, we're having a pretty good financial year, but this has not really been a part of it. Uh, we came into the event with almost all of our power sold for fully hedged. And I, you know, I'm going to be pretty frank about some of the issues, but I, you know, wanted to make sure uh, that, that, that that was the record was set there. So like, maybe I'm going to take a step back in the bigger picture. Uh, Governor Newsom uh, came into office uh, with a really complicated energy situation. I mean, it's more than just the Black House we've seen. We've had the wildfires. Uh, we've had the pg and &E bankruptcy. Um, you know, we've had the recent reliability event. And so the new administration really was gifted some challenges. Uh, and I've met with him a couple of times and believe him to be pragmatic and really problem-solving focused. Uh, you know, I believe he and his agency heads, um, you know, have clearly some work ahead of them. Um, uh, you know, California is not like the Eastern markets. You kind of ask us what you can learn. Um, you know, the experience is that they've had in California is certainly something that we would not recommend that the Eastern markets pursue. Rates are extremely high for consumers and businesses and new investment doesn't occur unless they're contracts. So think about that. Any new investment has to be, you know, really state direct procurement almost. Um, you know, so I think these are very different markets and, and I'll come back to, you know, some warnings um, for a minute. But that said, I, you know, I, I do think that the administration is in a good place um, and, and that there's some, you know, really good strategies uh, to, to work to work with here coming out of this. Um, you know, for the specific events in August, and I think you have to address them specifically before you um, talk about, you know, what the, you know, is it going to happen again? I think that there is a a set of questions, uh, really three that you have to ask. First is, 
they have a capacity market in California. It's called resource adequacy. And I think you have to ask, was the resource adequacy target sufficient? So they've got a 15% reserve margin. And, you know, the first question was, is, is that enough? Um, you know, is the forecast right of peak load and is 15% enough? And I actually think, you know, a couple of sub-questions there are, first, you have a much higher load variability than you used to have. Uh, maybe it's climate change, probably is, but load variability is a lot higher. And you have resource volatility, given that you've got a lot more intermittent generation. Um, and, you know, is the reserve margin out there appropriate, given that? Uh, we also, California historically has relied on a bunch of imports and the markets, what I call at the corners, that would be the desert Southwest as well as Pacific Northwest are much tighter. And if, you know, I don't think you can count on imports anymore unless they're contracted. So I think you really have to talk about the current reserve margin target and is that sufficient? The second question, which we don't yet have an answer for or understand is whether or not the load serving entities actually contracted for their full resource um, target for their energy resource target, you know, so, so you had to go out, each load-serving entity has to procure the reserve margin, and there's not a lot of visibility yet into whether or not there was full compliance on that, and I think that's a really fundamental question about whether enough RA was bought, you know, even if the target was appropriately, and then the final question is how did the different asset classes perform against their obligations, um, and the data is still coming out in this third point, uh, the, the it's, the data is a little, well, this is coming, but, you know, what we would say is that fossil performed as it has historically. Solar and wind had some variability, and I don't know about this weekend yet. I'm talking the, the previous event, but it didn't look like to us they were terribly off, um, you know, where they should have been during the peak, during the peak days. Um, and so the key questions in our mind are really around hydro demand response and airport performance. So time's just going to have to tell to see what happened there. Uh, you know, the real root cause, in our view, of what happens is, and this gets back to the eastern markets, maybe, is where they have a hybrid market there in California, which is you actually uh, have a kind of a market, but you don't really depend on the market for resource allocation decisions, so you end up kind of somewhere in between. Um, and, and, you know, the central planning function you need in that market uh, didn't work. So in California, uh, you know, I would say that there are really three main parts of planning. First is the ISO, and the independent system operator, the ISO, looks after the liability, um, but really has no procurement oversight unless it's only one year out and they can do emergency procurement. To be fair to the ISO, they certainly did point out the issues, but they did not have the tools to address them. The Energy Commission is responsible, so second organization, responsible for load forecasts. And their forecasts have actually been more bearish than what has actually occurred. So we've got forecasts that are coming in below load, particularly when you do multi-year projections. Um, and finally is the Public Utility Commission. And so they use the Energy Commission forecasts. They take into account commentary from the ISO, and then they direct procurement. But what they have procured is not always matched up with what the ISO thinks is required. And that can be specific location of the asset. It can be the duration of the asset or other requirements. Although I do want to give a shout out, they, I think, are doing a, a very good job on getting after something which is important for all the markets called the effective load carrying capacity or making sure that assets aren't overrated, um, and which is why, you know, in some ways the solar actually uh, performed admirably. So, look, the, the team, the, the, you know, the, the Governor Newsom and his team 
have got a tough inheritance. Uh, you know, they certainly, you know, there's work to be done, but, and, and I'm sure they're up to it. But I do think coming back to the states of the East, we got to be clear, a regulated market, fully regulated market can work. Uh, you end up with the Sumner, Kemper, um, and Vogel acceptance. You can pay a lot more, but you, things kind of work. Uh, the market approach, which historically these remarks have followed, you know, they generate a lot of investment and they absolutely have been pro proven to work. This hybrid going somewhere in between where you're sort of doing planning, but not really, can really be fraught with challenges. And I think that's really, you know, kind of at the root of the lesson for these. That was a mouthful, but that made sense. <laughs> yeah, no, that was terrific insight. And it's it's interesting, you know, you mentioned the, the governance challenge. And I mean, Cheryl LaFleur just penned a really interesting article up there at Columbia where she, she kind of identified the same issue. And that is, you know, there's almost like a who's in charge dilemma because of this hybrid structure. And when things go wrong, it, it, it's not clear how, how it's going to be solved. And that was kind of, I think, the point that she was making that you just you just made made as well. Well, you know, Cheryl has been uh, uh, has been talking about this for a while with, you know, kind of their three doors, where one door is the regulated market, the second door is the unregulated markets. Both of those work. The third door is the hybrid. And she has been very skeptical all along. Um, and someone to defend her markets, or very much so a defender of markets, that the uh, hybrid market can actually work. As you mentioned, in, in many ways, this is just a continuation of California's ongoing tragic energy saga. When and how did it all start going wrong, do you think? Well, I wouldn't use the term tragic. I think California has achieved a lot, uh, to be fair, Corey. You know, the, 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 there are a lot of renewables out there. Um, the integration has generally worked. Um, you know, we, don't, we are definitely not in agreement with all the policies. But, you know, things have, uh, you know, there have been some recent changes, which are, I believe, more appropriately valuing um, uh, assets that are needed for a liability. And I think there's been an understanding, particularly in the last year or so, predating this, of, you know, the importance of, you know, what type of assets you need in order to protect your liability. So I do think there's been some progress. Um, and the state's in a better place today, ironically, than they were uh, a year ago. Um, as, as you know, some of the physics have be increasingly become better understood. But in California, if you go back 10 years, really back to the crisis, there's been directed procurement the entire time. And I think that when you have direct procurement uh, and people aren't investing their own capital, their own risk, uh, it's really important that you've got a really good planning function. And, uh, and, and it's, you know, put together um, uh, with, all, you know, in a very deliberate way. And I think that, you know, the peace parts here have kind of conspired against me. Well, we got through the meat and potatoes. Now it's time for my favorite part, the rapid fire section. Thad, this is where we will just kind of pelt questions at you and we're, we're looking for answers right off the top of your head. So the first one, what are the odds that two Thads end up leading one of the largest energy companies in the world? And how does that even happen? Uh, thanks, Rory. So um, the other Thad that Rory's referencing is Thad Miller, who's our executive vice chairman and chief legal officer. Um, and Thad and I have worked together uh, a long time. Uh, and, uh, you know, as, as a, a brief history, we, uh, we met uh, working for a private equity firm that was looking at buying a utility in the West Coast back in the very early aughts. Um, I met Jack Pusco there as well, who's now my, who's my predecessor, who's now the CEO of Chenier. 
and ultimately ended up, uh, we worked together a second time in Texas and then at Calpine starting in 2008. I would say uh, firmly tongue in cheek, our CFO is named Zamir. Uh, and, you know, kind of the running joke is, you know, with Thad and I here, that Zamir is really Thad in Arabic. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Love it. Love it. You mentioned Jack Fusco as your predecessor. Do you have any role models uh, in this uh, in this business? Well, I would have to say Jack uh, in unambiguous terms. Uh, and I've worked with him three separate times. Um, at the end, you know, at 2014, he, he stepped down as CEO and I stepped in. And, you know, Jack, you know, a couple of his key attributes are he's an incredibly smart and intuitive businessman. Uh, he also has a unbelievably warm, welcoming, hospitable sense about him. Uh, you know, I tend to be a little more analytical and I think over the years that it's been really good for me to observe Jack and uh, he's obviously been very successful in everything that he's done. So I, I think a lot of them and I owe him a lot and I would definitely put him in that category. All right. You got your undergrad from Vanderbilt. Can we assume from that then that you really like baseball and country music? <laughs> I do like baseball and country music. I think the uh, coach of Vanderbilt, Tim Corbin, has done a wonderful job. I've actually got a brother that works in Nashville and country music. Uh, I, I would say, though, uh, Rory, that I, you know, I hail from – I'm a native of Athens, Georgia, and I am a huge football fan. Okay. So, um, you know, I, although I like the Astros, it was mentioned up top, I, uh, you know, I'm probably first and foremost a football fan. Any particular squad that you pull for? Uh, in the college ranks, it would be Georgia, which is my hometown team, and okay. my, my family's been from for a while. All right, great. Pull, let me be clear. I pulled for Vanderbilt, too. I just, okay. <laughs> there, there, there's one week in a conflict every fall, but I am. Uh, hopefully you're betting on Georgia, because I don't know. It's been a while since Vanderbilt beat them. It has been a while. All right, who are the bigger cheaters? You said you're an Astros fan, but who are the bigger cheaters, the Astros or the Red Sox? Rory, Rory. Well, first, the, the Red Sox cheated after the Astros, so I'm going to give them <laughs> uh, for sure. And, I mean, come on. I mean, it's been three years in a pandemic between 2017 and now. I think, I think we should just move on. I don't know. I don't know. Hold on a sec. I'm dying to turn my office. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You got your MBA from Dartmouth. Did you, by chance – check out their rugby club and if so how good are they and how great are their facilities their field house is just amazing yeah no the facilities at Dartmouth are great I did not check out the rugby yeah. team when I was spent my two years in the upper valley I uh we worked pretty hard at school um and my free time uh was somewhere between learning to play ice hockey snow skiing and uh probably beer drinking so uh, unfortunately <laughs> uh, no, no perspective on the rugby team well, there's three great things to do in Hanover, New Hampshire. So, well done. <laughs> it's a beautiful um, part of the world for sure. Yeah, yeah, it really is. All right, who are the more insufferable alumni, the SEC or the Ivy League? <laughs> well, I live in Texas, and there are fewer Ivy League folks here, so I'm gonna I'm gonna answer it. Uh, people who live on the East Coast may have a different point of view, um, but uh, down here, I'd probably say the SEC. And I'm gonna. I'm probably one of those insufferable fans. I'm a firm believer <laughs> in SEC football superiority with an apology to, I know neither of you are Big Ten guys. We're certainly hail from Big Ten country. But, uh, but, but I, you know, I'm a big SEC football fan. So I, for this part of the world, the SEC. There you go. You can't argue with those results. It's been impressive. That's true. Fair enough. All right. Outside of competitive wholesale electricity markets, what keeps you up at night? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use a, an example. I had a chance – 
earlier this year before the pandemic really got going, I heard a uh, session where uh, Paul Begala and Tucker Carlson were on a stage together in a ballroom. And, uh, and, and those guys are obviously the old crossfire guys. They did the, you know, in the early aughts. Mm-hmm. And they, they're friends, although they have very different political views. And, and they were telling stories. And, you know, the thing that really struck me, and this is, you know, sometime during the Bush presidency, and, and they described a day on crossfire where they were screaming at each other, right, having one of those debates. Um, and the whole debate was, should the capital gains tax be 24% or 27%, right? You know, that was kind of, you know, the left versus the right. Sure. Um, you know, we're a place where we have much, much bigger divides now in this country, ideological and almost every topic. And so, uh, you know, certainly uh, I view myself ultimately, uh, you know, as, you know, somebody where I hope compromise can lead to better outcomes. And, you know, it's just a difficult spot right now for the country. So, Hopefully we'll get back to those days where we can, you know, you know, have the debate I just mentioned or a debate like that, um, you know, where, where the, the passionate positions aren't as far apart as it might otherwise be. What book is on your nightstand right now while you're staying up at night? Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, and it may be disappointing, but I, I'm, a, I'm a fiction reader. I, I read very little nonfiction. I'll occasionally do a, uh, a biography or, um, or, or something along those lines. Uh, but I read, you know, kind of think Ian McHugh and John Irving literary fiction most of the time. So uh, the book that I started this weekend is called The Nickel Boys uh, by a guy named uh, Colson Whitehead. Um, and it's, it's a, uh, you know, it's a fiction uh, book, uh, but, but that's typically what I read. So I don't know if it's that interesting to people, but I'm a fiction reader. All right. What are you most proud of? Well, certainly, uh, I mean, I probably put that in two buckets. One, we've, our kids are 12 uh, 15 and 16 and almost 15 and 16 and they're growing into great great you know well great teenagers and they're going into I believe great young adults and so I'm very proud of my kids and their work ethic and and I hope that um you know you know have all the best hopes for them you know I think professionally uh it's going to be the company that Calpinus can't kind of become uh the new executive management team came into Calpine in 2008 right when you got out of bankruptcy or when Calpine came out of bankruptcy, we came in right after that. And we found a company with some great technical talent and really good assets. Uh, but, so we had a chance to really form a company. And I believe we are a great operating company. I think we're firmly in control. I think we generally speak the same language and we make good decisions. Um, you know, we make mistakes too, but I'm pretty proud of the operating company that Calpine's become. All right, now we're going to transition into the section of our show where hopefully you have, you have prepped for this or we're prepped for this and, and are uh, aware of where we're going. We call this two minutes of advice. It's a section where you've got two minutes to level with anyone, anywhere, one-on-one. Who are you going with and what does he or she need to hear? Well, I'm going to go with Vice President Biden or his potential uh, energy advisors. Uh, and, and, you know, certainly, uh, I don't know who's going to win the presidential election. I was going to say, are you making a pre- uh, prediction here? No, no, no. I, I okay. think it's about some of the, the discussion that, that will occur during the campaign this fall. Okay. I, I think, you know, maybe may take a step back. You know, there's a lot of talk about uh, climate change uh, and the science behind it. And it's clearly they're deniers. Uh, the science, you know, obviously supports the fact that climate change is real. 
However, I actually think we need to use that same approach, that same science and analytics around a solution too. It's not, you know, I, I don't think it's a good thing to rely on science to determine climate change and then put out policies that don't have the same kind of rigor. Uh, and, and so, you know, one of the vice president's uh, proposed policies is carbon net neutrality on the grid, the electric grid, by 2035. And I don't think that this is necessarily plausible, nor does it, I actually think, help or get you the right place in overall decarbonization. From a plausibility standpoint, uh, there's been a, now this ac academic work I mentioned by Secretary Menuse, I mentioned by E3 and others, uh, that show that uh, you know you can reduce carbon dramatically from the electric grid, but that you know to actually get all the way to carbon net neutrality gets really, really, really expensive. Um, and you know, if we're, we, we are participating very actively. We're looking at CCUS and some assets um, and are making progress in that. We're talking about the burn hydrogen and some of our assets. And we're spending a lot of time on this. And there is potential. But I don't think by 2035, you can really achieve that. Um, and secondly, uh, and, and I think these you know, third-party academic studies make that very clear as well. I also mentioned, I'm not sure it's that helpful, which is if you're gonna electrify everything, um, you're gonna be growing wood dramatically over this time period if you really are gonna decarbonize. And so, you know, I, I think the right thing is to let's just take a step back, look at the whole picture, which is decarbonization of the economy and talk about how you get there in a scientific way or in an analytical way, truly make sure we have the right, um, you know, we, we get things done in the right way. So that would be my, that would be my uh, advice. Yeah, I like that. And it's, it's, it's always the way that I would prefer that our politicians uh, develop their policies. Glenn, you always like the, the two minute section here. Who do you have this month? Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with Maria Korsnick, uh, the president and CEO of the Nuclear Energy Institute. Um, and I've actually never met Maria. I'm sure she does a terrific job for the organization, but on September 3rd, she wrote a pretty tone-deaf uh, op-ed in the cleveland.com, which I think is the Cleveland Plain Dealers website. But it was one of those op-ed pieces you read and you say to yourself, wow, uh, this author just doesn't get it. Um, you know, certainly we talked at length about the Ohio situation on our last podcast with Todd Snitchler. Uh, and Maria acknowledged some of those, you know, heartbreaking decisions of a few bad actors. And I put that in quotes because that's what she used um, in the op-ed. But then she qu quickly pivoted to NEI's sensible, sound, and essential efforts to maintain carbon-free energy generation. House Bill 6 was held up as an example of such a sensible and sound policy. Um, but I'm sorry. Sensible and sound policies don't require $60 million in alleged bribes to pass. Uh, if we want to talk about sensible and sound policies, I'd be happy to do that. But sensible and sound policies in my book do not include giving $150 million of your consumer's money to a company that just gave $800 million to its shareholders in the form of a stock buyback. I've spent most of my career doing energy policy. I have policy disagreements all the time with people, many of whom are my closest friends these days. I can have policy debates all the time, but those debates should be a fair fight. You can't have a fair fight when alleged bribes are going back and forth between the principles involved in this. 
So my specific advice to Maria this month is to accept my challenge and support a repeal of the nuclear bailout provisions in House Bill 6. If this policy is indeed sensible and sound as you say it is, it should have no problem passing on its own merit without the taint of a bribery scandal around it. Time is certainly not of the essence. Uh, the company that's getting this money, like I said, just gave $800 million back to its shareholders. I'm happy, happy to go back to Columbus as many times as it takes, have a debate about House Bill 6 um, and whether the policies contained in it were indeed sound and sensible. Let's have that discussion and then see where the discussion ends up. That's my two minutes of advice this morning, Rory. All right. Those were great. I, I had a couple of ideas that I was going to go with, but my two minutes always somehow seem to transform into rants rather than advice. <laughs> I know we are low on time, so I will just say, uh, once again, we have given you a full hour of content. Um, we are not going to have any minutes left, uh, so you get nothing back from the GT Power Hour other than uh, tons of great insight from our guest today, Thad Hill. Um, so apologies to all of our audience members who timed their workouts to our episodes like Chairman Chatterjee. Hopefully it just flew by. Um, let's move on to last thoughts from you, Glenn. No, just uh, really appreciate you joining us. That was a terrific conversation and uh, look forward to continuing to engage because there's some fun issues lying ahead of us. And I, I hope your future staff agenda items have more promising agenda items on it <laughs> than the one you had a few weeks ago. Yeah, thanks, Glenn. And Roy, thanks for having me. You know, we do look forward to life getting back to normal, hopefully at some point in 2021. But I, I do think, uh, you know, we're engaged in a lot of these, uh, you know, discussions. Uh, and I think there's a simple concept that I think is American, which is let markets work and markets are going to do a better job than government picking winners and losers. And look, there's a place for compromise and not everything is going to be pure and not everything's going to be perfect. But, you know, we certainly, uh, you know, think that there continues to be room uh, for competitive markets to uh you know, to provide a lot of benefit to people that pay their light bills. And so we're going to keep working for that. Amen. Great. Thank you both for being on the show today. And remember, Bill and Ted 3 is available for rent on Amazon right now if you have not seen it yet. And I have to admit, I have not seen it yet, but I have done plenty of research. It is literally getting the band back together after 20 years. You've got Bill Esquire and Ted, and they are crafting the song that saves the universe. So uh, check that out if you are looking for something to pass the time until next month's episode of the GT Power Hour. So until then, and as always, be excellent to each other. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of the GT Power Hour. The views expressed on the show represent those of the hosts and not necessarily any GT Power Group client. For more information, please visit www.gtpowergroup.com. That's G-T-P-O-W-E-R-G-R-O-U-P.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.